This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Hey, podcast listeners. Peter and I hope our conversations about the musicals we love is prompting some further thoughts and conversation for you. And so we hope that you'll consider joining us under the auspices of Vancouver School of Theology in British Columbia for a class that we'll be teaching on Zoom this summer called The Gospel and Musical Theater, Race and Redemption. We'll be focusing on questions of race and how they factor into the history of musical theater, as well as what we can learn from one another as we reflect theologically on these questions as they show up in in some of our favorite musicals like Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, Ragtime, and West Side Story, Into the Heights, and Hamilton, and many, many more, there is no more important topic for people of faith to be confronting right now, we believe, than white supremacy and the many, many ways it has played out in North American history and culture. So we'll be teaching on Zoom. You can join us from wherever you happen to be, July 12th through the 16th this summer. We hope that you'll join us. You can read more and register at the Vancouver School of Theology website. That's www.vst.edu backslash summer school. Hope to see you there. So welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theater. My name is Nathan LaRude. I'm the Dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Hey, and my name is Peter Elliott. Huh? A bunch of us who are retired call ourselves has deans, which is kind of fun. So for 25 <laughs> years, I was the dean. Oh, of Peter, you're not a, Vancouver, you're not a has dean. Oh, come on, I'm a has dean. <laughs> Once a dean, um, always a dean. I, <laughs> from British Columbia, Vancouver, uh, north of the 49th parallel here in the true north, strong and free in Canada. And it's great to be back with you as we begin our series on Rogers and Hammerstein. Yes, indeed. So, Oklahoma, 1943, Rogers and Hammerstein. Peter, tell us a little bit about who these guys are, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, and the world yeah. of uh, Oklahoma. The world of Oklahoma and the world of Oscar Hammerstein II and Richard Rogers. So, these two, this duo, in some ways, are the uh, sine qua non of musical theater collaborators. They're, they in many ways, and Oklahoma is really seen as the beginning of the musical theater canon, although Oscar Hammerstein had uh, written the lyrics for Showboat, which maybe we'll get around to talking about sometime in these podcasts, with Jerome Kern. And Richard Rogers had written a great musical called Pal Joy with Lawrence Hart. And they were brought together to look at some source material that Nathan's going to talk about in a minute, um, that turned out to be Oklahoma. And arguably, Oklahoma began a whole series of musical theater productions in Broadway, beginning in 1943. Hammerstein's the lyricist. Rogers is the composer. Hammerstein's lyrics, oh, what can I say? There's not much better in, in the musical theater canon. Uh, some of the great songs... In the, uh, in the American uh, songbook, uh, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, You'll mm -hmm. Never Walk Alone, Climb Every Mountain, beautiful tunes, Richard Rogers, a lyrical yeah. composer, uh, but words that, that, are, uh, that stay in your mind, and we'll talk a bit about that. Opened, as Nathan said, on Broadway in 1943, ran for five years on Broadway, 
breaking all records, 2,248 performances. Following that, a national tour, touring about for 10 years, touring about 250 cities before audiences extending 10 million. In addition, there have been companies uh, immediately after the the Broadway run formed uh, to play in Europe, South Africa, Scandinavia, Australia, and the armed forces in all the theaters of war during the last year's Second World War. And in London, uh, Oklahoma ran uh, the longest production at the Drury Lane Theater. Today, a uh, recent Broadway um, revival, 2018, I think, uh, that 20, we'll talk about. Yeah, it started at Circle and Square, I 20, think, 2018, yeah. And regularly performed in high schools, community theater groups, all across North America, indeed around the world. I think we ended our last podcast with me telling a story about having lunch with a woman who'd played Ado Annie when she was in high school. And she's now in her late 60s, I would think. And over lunch in a restaurant, she went into a whole bunch of dialogue. This kind of sticks in your brain. So It's all but still there. In, it's all still there. But in so many ways, lots of us look to Oklahoma as kind of the beginning of the musical theater tradition on Broadway and the and the great American musical theater canon. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oklahoma, every night my honey lamb and I sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. A groundbreaking show in just about every in just about every way, right? Like, and also first, I think the first full cast recording. There, there had not been a, a kind of you know every song from a musical recorded as an album before Oklahoma. Uh, so there again, right, pioneering this whole new thing. And for you and I, and for I suspect many of our listeners, uh, the phenomenon of the original Broadway cast recording is pretty seminal in our experience of musical theater, right? For for many people, I mean and, and how many and how many of our listeners grew up with the Oklahoma cast recording as an as an LP on their record shelf, right? Along with probably My Fair Lady and maybe Camelot and South Pacific and I mean that was just the, that was the standard American, I think probably the standard Canadian record collection included these albums. So they became embedded in American culture in a way that Broadway shows before this, you know, you would have a couple popular songs maybe from a show that would the sheet music would come out and there would be artists who would record them for the radio but the idea of a broadway of a broadway show from start to finish the music being presented so that you could listen to it in your home and in some way vicariously experience the production that maybe you'd seen when it toured your your town as part of the national touring company um, that was a that was a new thing that that was not a that was not a thing before oklahoma um, so in some ways we might say oklahoma kind of constitutes an american musical theater culture or certainly in America, and my sense is not just in America, um, kind of begins this idea of almost a kind of cultural cohesion through theater and through music that I think is a really, and of course, no better show to talk about uh, what the promise of cultural cohesion and maybe the danger, the, uh, the dark side of cultural cohesion than this most quintessentially American of shows, right? All about the land, uh, you think about the the kind of the great eleven o'clock number in Oklahoma is a hymn to the land, right? A hymn to statehood, a hymn to 
farmers and cowboys, all white people, uh, coming together to build a society. It's a hymn to America, really. And with an infectious energy that in 1943, you, I, can, I can understand how, you know, for, for American audiences, for Canadian audiences, for English audiences, that was a galvanizing cry, I think. Uh, both a kind of a nostalgic look at a, at a previous time, but maybe even more importantly, a sort of a rallying cry for the values that we thought we were fighting for, right? Statehood, yep. uh, heterosexual marriage, uh, uh, all the kind of, you know, all, all that goes into making kind of a, a white people's version of America in 1943. Oklahoma is, um, is in many ways a tribute to that, uh, that thing. It's a tribute. And of course, it's enormously problematic at the same time, because Oklahoma yeah. was the territory that indigenous people were resettled in from across, uh, across, the, across the states. And interestingly, this, this kind of anthem to this state, this new territory, includes not a single Indian. There's not right. an indigenous person anywhere near the whitewashed and really white, uh, whitewashed world of prairie sun, cornfields, cowboys, box socials. I mean, it yep. really is all about a box social for heaven's sake. It's a courting story. It's about, it's about romance. It's about sexuality. And it's also got a darker edge that I know we'll get to at some point. But some of that comes out of the original source material. That's actually yeah. quite fascinating and a story not well known. Yeah, but I think that's a great place to start. You know, the 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 absences that I I think we want to argue are are central in some ways to understanding Oklahoma, right? I mean, and and those absences are or those erasures, as actually what I want to call them. Those are deliberate erasures, both in terms of the the Western imagination, right? The ways in which uh, the native story was deliberately erased, actively erased from the white people's experience of the frontier, right? From what, about 18, what do we want to say, 20? Uh, probably earlier than, actually, you know, in the, in the Canadian context, even earlier than that, to, I mean, certainly right down to 1943, right? This is the story that had become the dominant story about how we, how we belong to the land, to use the, the language that you, I know, want to talk about a little bit later and from the, from the song Oklahoma. But yeah, that, that very deliberate erasure. And in many ways, you know, we, I love Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, but they took source material that was far more nuanced in its treatment of the land, right? So Lynn Riggs, who wrote the original play, Green Grow the Lilacs, upon which Oklahoma is based, was himself half Cherokee, uh, grew up in Oklahoma territory, and in many ways, and was, was very, very deliberate about Green Grow the Lilacs was in some ways his elegy for a lost history, right? A time in which... Indian Territory, which is what it was called, right? And you never hear the word Indian Territory in the musical Oklahoma, although that is where it is Not set, once. right? It, the the yeah. state of Oklahoma doesn't exist yet when Oklahoma takes place. It's Indian Territory. And Lynn, Lynn Riggs grew up in Indian Territory, half Cherokee, half white, and in many ways wrote a play that was a kind of lament for a time before statehood when Indian Territory had a kind of autonomy. And actually, the original story you know, of Green Grow the Lilacs is about settlers who are in many ways opposed to statehood. Uh, at the end of the play, you know, Curly murders Jeter. Jeter becomes Judd in the musical. But Curly murders Jeter, and Aunt Eller steps in and says, there's no way you're turning this boy over to the authorities. What are you, a bunch of foreigners? Remember, we're Indians, right? Uh, the, the U.S. government cannot tell us how to legislate this thing. We're Indians. We're going to do this our way. So it's a really, actually, in some ways, a very powerful statement 
about indigenous autonomy at a time before Oklahoma becomes white territory with a bunch of characters, Ann Eller presumably is one of them, who are themselves of mixed race. So there's there's a and so Oscar Oscar Hammerstein, Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers take that story and whitewash it. Right. Make it palatable for 1943. And actually, there's there's some really interesting. Stephen Sondheim talks about a uh, a letter. I think it was from I don't remember if it was from Hammerstein to Ro- Richard Rogers says to uh, and this isn't quite so much the native erasure that that we can talk about. Uh, but there's also a really interesting homoerotic. So Lynn Riggs is also openly gay, right? An openly gay playwright in the 30s when that was, you know, he didn't have much of a career. And we might well wonder why, because um, he was pretty un- unapologetic about the choices he made as an artist and as an, as an individual. Uh, presumably, Hammerstein and Rogers knew this about Lynn Riggs, because there's a, there's a letter that Rogers writes to Hammerstein where he says, we're going to have to clean up some of the queer stuff. I don't remember if he uses the word queer, um, but, but the idea here is they were very aware of the homoerotic subtext in the relationship between Curly and Jeter. That was, that was very deliberately presented by Lynn Riggs. And Ro- Roger Hammerstein said, yeah, that's, that, we're not going there. That's not going to work. Although, interestingly, I think the show... I think the show got the better of them. And we, we're seeing this in some of the more recent revivals where, you know, they laid groundwork for a much more interesting relationship between the, the kind of the, the love triangle between Laurie Curley and Judd. You know, they, they, they tried to neaten it up, but more recent productions are kind of pulling some of that more original. So there's, there's this ghost of Lynn Riggs, the ghost of Indian territory, the ghost of a much more complicated sexuality that is in some ways being resurrected in Oklahoma. And you don't have to change a word of the libretto. You don't have to change a word of the lyrics that Hammerstein wrote. There are, every song in Oklahoma is a gem. It's all there, despite maybe some, some attempts to kind of neaten it up and straighten it, you know, kind of straighten it, <laughs> literally straighten it out. Straighten it um, up, yeah. There's a, there's a really interesting subtext slash text in, buried in Oklahoma, and it's now finally kind of being being presented. So Oklahoma becomes, I think, this kind of, I mean, almost a palimpsest of the American, and maybe we might even say the Western colonial experience. And it's, it's, not, a sh- it's not a simple show. There's a lot in this show. There is a lot in the show. And, and when you're curly, when you're a handsome, white, strapping, young, sexually attractive male, everything's going your way. Yeah. And that is kind of the first words that are out of his mouth when, I mean, it was unusual for a show to open with uh, a woman sitting on a porch churning butter. Yeah. There is Aunt Eller. This is a long way from the Zigfield shows, which had dominated Broadway. Yep. Chorus with girls with legs. <laughs> and big production numbers and all that sort of stuff. The curtain goes up on Oklahoma and you're in a, a domestic scene, yeah. an old woman in a rocking chair. Well, maybe it's not a rocking chair. It doesn't matter. I think she is. A I think churning she's. Butter. Yeah, I think I think the stage directions are something like this. The curtain rises on an old woman in a rocking chair churning butter. I think that it's something like that is what Hammerstein wrote, and that's right out of Lynn Riggs, right? That is the opening image. Um, he just they just lifted it wholesale out of the material. And from the wings, you hear. Usually a great voice. The best singer in Oklahoma, uh, best singers have to be Curly and and Lori for sure. But Curly, that voice should just send. We talked last time about the free zone. Uh, There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. Corn is as high as an elephant's eye. What a rhyme right there. I mean, that's enough. uh, You've got elephants in the middle of Oklahoma. (laughs) How does he know? He's never seen an elephant. (laughs) Um, 
everything's going my way. Everything is going your way if you're white, if you have money, if you're heterosexual. Everything is going his way. There's no denying that sort of great moment. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. And, of course, what happens in the plot is, well, everything doesn't go his way. Uh, the girl he's in love with and he have a a disagreement uh, that actually leads. And I think this is the other thing about Oklahoma. At its heart, it's a story about murder. Yeah. It's a it's a dark, violent story of a of well, what's presented as a conflict between two uh, strapping uh, heterosexual males fighting over. You know, the ingenue, the right. an innocent young um, blonde thing, the innocent young blonde thing. But beyond that, mm-hmm. the I think it's in the, the the original play. There is a there's a hint, maybe more than a hint that there was some kind of unwanted sexual advance from Curly to Jeter to Judd that, again, is completely erased in Rodgers and Hammerstein's take. Yeah, or mostly erased. Although I, I, I spent the afternoon kind of listening to the, uh, to the soundtrack, and poor Judd is dead. I mean, at least, at least in the, in you, you really get this in the most recent revival recording. I mean, you know, poor Judd is dead is written. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hilarious song. It's the, the lyrics are, you know, the, it, and it's presented to you, I think, at, at a surface level, kind of as a joke, right? Here's Curly having it on with Judd, and Judd is supposedly has no idea that he's basically being verbally bullied by this guy who's, you know, sketching out this funeral, and the girls are gonna weep, and people are gonna say what a slob this guy was, and he hung out with the rats because they were like his, like his kin, and you're, you're meant to think like, oh, Judd has no idea that Curly is, you know, like look how funny and clever Curly is, look how stupid and oaf. Judd is but the there's an element of almost I want to say almost eroticized joy in Curly's berating of Judd Mm. he's getting off right and to a certain degree Judd is Judd is compelled by this vision so what's the vision right like a funeral where people weep for you you know like Judd is obviously getting into that uh, because he's a you know he's misunderstood he's you know alone in his shed in the back you know so you you can understand maybe even sympathize with this guy who is you know suddenly compelled by an image that people are gonna miss me when i'm gone but there's a deeper level of chemistry between these two characters and and in some ways it's it's a uh, a very uncomfortable i think depiction of a kind of eroticized bullying at play between curly and judd um and i don't know anybody any any one of us who's ever been in a locker room especially as a, as a queer boy in a locker room. I mean, I recognize some of those dynamics. Uh, it's, and they're not, I mean, usually typ- typically presented in a musical. Poor Judd is dead. Poor Judd Fry is dead. He's looking all so peaceful and serene. He's all laid out to rest. 
With his hands across his chest His fingernails have never been so clean And then the preacher would get up and he'd say Folks, we are gathered here to moan and groan Over our brother Judd Fry Who hung himself up by a rope in the smokehouse Wailing from some of them women, he said, Judd was the most misunderstood man in the territory, and people used to think he's a mean, ugly feller, and they called him a dirty skunk and an ornery pig stealer. But the folks that really know him know that beneath them two dirty shirts he always wore their a heart as big as all outdoors As big as all outdoors Judd Fry loved his fellow man He loved his fellow man But there's a, I don't know, a kind of interesting dark exploration of male sexuality going on with and and then and then Lori becomes this weird kind of almost symbolic presence for the two of them right Judd is obsessed with Lori and he he sings lonely room and he imagines her blonde hair kind of you know falling all over him Curly also I think you know sees Lori as something symbolic as much as a real person right like she represents uh, domesticity. So in some ways, he's running running wholesale from Curly, right? Because he's a cowboy. But also, he at a certain level knows, right? This is the future. She's, you know, she's a wife. She's a cook. She's a, a good, clean girl. And Lori pretty regularly um, pushes back against the the what the the expectations that these men are i mean even as she sort of entertains them right she uses judd to play judd against curly she uses curly to play against judd um so she's very much to a certain degree in control of her own sexuality and her own uh mythology even as a woman um but is not you know laurie is not content to be boxed in by either of these men in her life so it's a really interesting gender sexuality triangle full of uh interesting choices for actors to make i mean these are actually three very interesting deep dark roles uh when they're not you know presented as surface level cowboys and sweet blonde things and a big oafish guy in the shed who just represents pure villainry um, there's a there's a much right. more complicated love triangle I think at the heart of Oklahoma. Yeah, and love triangle is exactly the right word. I mean, it's the competition uh, between the between the dudes for the for the girl, mm-hmm. right? This is kind of setting up the triangle, and and this is kind of the myth around. I think in this time, 1942, they're probably writing it just as the Second World War is getting going, and the you can imagine the psychology of of, of families whose uh, sons had gone off to the to Europe or later to Japan, the Pacific, and that South Pacific, and we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But the great competition for uh, finding a mate and all the dynamics and all the drama, and even more than that, from a theological point of view, I think what happens is that Judd becomes the scapegoat for the unexamined sexuality, the passion, the eroticism that kind of is all over Oklahoma, but whitewashed or covered over with a kind of middle-class morality. And uh, 
that that and what's theological about that is one way to read the Jesus story is that Jesus becomes the victim of the projections of people who cannot deal with the incarnate presence of God in their midst with, with love and generosity and mercy and compassion being enacted in a human life. Now, I'm not saying that Judd is a Christ <laughs> figure. Is a Christ <laughs> yeah, figure. that might be pushing it a little hard. But I, but I love this. I mean, and it, it comes from the theology of René Girard, right? This kind of French uh, anthropologist, literary critic uh, who, who does some really interesting work that then subsequent Christian theologians have really kind of taken to, taken to them. I think about J- James Allison, some other um, sort of in the Girardian tradition, kind of thinking about this anthropological phenomenon of scapegoating, right? That this is, this is not unique to Christianity or to Christian societies, that something about human society, cohesion in society, requires a scapegoat, right? And we see this played out in Oklahoma in spades, right? Like, in order for them to sing Oklahoma and come together as a community, we know we belong to the land, the land we belong to is grand, Judd has to be outside. In other words, Oklahoma can't be Oklahoma unless Judd is exiled, and he then has to be you know, killed essentially, right? And that's and that's what Oklahoma is, as you say. It's a murder story. It's an execution story. the The scapegoat must be ritually crucified in order for we might say demonic society to find its cohesion. Society requires a victim. So that's the anthropological phenomenon that Girard is looking at. And then Christian theologians are looking at the story of Jesus and saying, actually, the amazing thing about the gospel is that you see God siding with the victim over and against the society, right? So that that's actually where God shows up in this anthropological system. God is always on the side of the victim. God's always on the side of the scapegoat. Jesus becomes the scapegoat who then explodes that story, right? The resurrection is in some ways the power of God exploding that anthropological system, uh, that sacrificial system, really, and, and saying, you know, through the resurrection, like, the victim is the one that saves society. So that's where the—I think that's where the—that's uh, where Judd is not a Christ figure, right? Judge is not, at least usually, in production of Oklahoma, uh, resurrected. But the, Christians, the Christian idea there is that it's the scapegoated victim that has the power to save you and has the power to redeem society um, by, by coming back from the dead like, and, 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 and coming back to forgive, right? The forgiving victim is the, the image from, from Jerome's allegory, right? Like, not, not yeah. to wreak vengeance on the society that scapegoated him. If, Judd's, if there's a second act or a third act to Oklahoma, you know, and Judd really is a Christ figure, he comes back to embrace Curly and Lori with oh, the power of his love. Now, that's not the story Oklahoma that tells, right? Like, so, and that's where, you know, it's not, it's not a traditional gospel narrative. But there is this interesting play with the phenomenon of scapegoating and 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 what and what the role of the victim in consolidating society really is yeah and i i think the the christian perspective on the world is always calling us to look at look toward those whom are being excluded and why because it is as you say this kind of inbred tendency to form a society to push someone to the margins to push somebody to the edges to push whole groups of people as indeed indigenous people were to come back to the kind of whole irony of Oklahoma 
exclamation mark right. Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, the exclamation mark is part of the title yep. of the show, what, which was um, all, which almost didn't happen. I think the story is that they it, they they originally printed the opening night playbills or something like that without the exclamation mark, and somebody I don't remember who the producer or somebody like that went through with a marker on opening night and yeah. added the exclamation right like oh nope we gotta we gotta have that exclamation mark because that's what makes Oklahoma Oklahoma is that exclamation mark yeah. And the sexuality, I mean, maybe we can also look at to the two other, the other couple. And this is um, uh, in terms of the structure of musical theater. uh, Lots of them have taken their cue from Oklahoma, having a kind of dominant couple, Curly and Laurie. And then having this other couple, uh, Ali Hakim and Edo Ang. And who is Ali Hakim and what is, is he, what is he doing in this story? <laughs> is he, is, is he, I guess, Persian? Yeah, they call but him the Persian. He... What does, and what does that mean? Like, what, what do they, mean? what do they think they mean? I, I suspect that, you know, in 19, whatever this is, 1906, Claremore, Oklahoma, like, Persian is probably code for, I mean, somebody who's not like us. And that could be almost right. anything. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost an impossible character to play. Yeah. Um, and every production that I've seen of Oklahoma, I just want to cringe when the poor actor who's gotten that role has to, I mean, there's hugely comic moments, great, uh, 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 great funny moments between him and Ado Annie, who, well, let's just say it. I guess she's a nymphomaniac. Is she, or is that, is that how we shame a woman who is, who's just really in control of her body and her choices and likes having fun. And I mean, she, in some ways, like she's treated as a joke, right? Like, I mean, she's, she's a comedic character and, you know, can't say no. We're meant to sort of like cuck along. Oh, ha ha ha. Isn't this funny? She, I don't know. There's some, there's a, there's a joy and an energy to Edo Annie that I, I mean, in some ways is a little, she's a little bit ahead of her time. Uh, she's kind of, you know, she's she's a very contemporary woman in a lot of ways. She's a liberated Yeah, woman. she's like, you know, yeah. I don't see a problem with if I enjoy this. I, you know, I, and I, 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 the lyrics to Can't Say No are actually, you know, it's like, I've been told all these, I don't, I can't pulling, I don't have them in front of me, but you know, like I hear all these stories about, you know, men taking advantage of girls and how we're supposed to keep ourselves locked up. And she's like, no, I'm, you know, with or without the mistletoe, I'm in a holiday mood. Other girls are cool (laughs) and hard to get, but other girls ain't having any fun. Every time I lose a wrestling match, I have a funny feeling that I won. I mean, those are actually kind of empowering lyrics. I remember seeing Ali Stryker, the, the actress who won the Tony for it in the 2019 revival, right? So a, a woman in a, in a wheelchair, uh, wheeling her. And so there you kind of, you, you get a little bit of the sense of the ballsiness of this character, right? Because she's, she is totally in control of her chair. She's wheeling around the stage like, you know, com- like there, is, there is nothing disabled about this actor, right? Like she right, is completely right, in control right. of her body. She is selling the song, um, it becomes this kind of exuberant embrace of, you know, nothing about me is going to keep me from living the life that I want to live in this body that I have been given by God. It's beautiful. I know I mustn't fall into the pit, but when I'm with the filler, I forget. Just when I are to say nicks when a person 
If there's good news in Oklahoma, I think you might start with Adoani. She's she's got she's onto something. She's onto something, and of course, there's another triangle because we have Will, yep. and uh, so we've got these two triangles: Will and uh, Ali Hakim, who end up kind of uh, in bartering for for her uh, hand. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, a very uncomfortable moment that it's who has the most money gets to have Edo Annie, which uh, speaks into the whole history of women in relationship, having their identity defined by an economic relationship with a male. And that's just out there in spades in, in Oklahoma and probably didn't make the 1942 to 1948 audiences feel all that uncomfortable. No, probably not. Yeah. That was, that was very familiar, right? Like this is how, this is how the world works. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in 1943, you know, Addo Annie gets domesticated right at the end of the show. She, you know, they, she and will have uh, what's the, what's the song? Um, with me, it's all or nothing, all or nothing, right? And with so we're, me, it's, all we're nothing, it's, yeah. it's a cute little, you know, like he's kind of, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to button it up at And there's a little bit of a wink and a nod, right? Like she's like, okay, well, I will if you will. Like, don't wait up for me. But at the end of the song, right? Like they go, they kiss, they go off and on. We're meant to think, okay, this crazy woman's sexuality has now been contained in the very safe box of a heterosexual marriage that she and Will are going to, you know, like he's going to tame her basically. And that makes the 1943 audience feel great. They get to leave the theater, you know but there but the song there again right kind of like i can't say no the song is a very modern negotiation of two people who are in love with one another and are seeking to make a life together but at a certain level they both know that the heterosexual monogamous marriage narrative is not necessarily going to be their narrative and there's a really interesting negotiation. And in some ways, like, I want to say Ado Annie and, and Will Parker have a very modern marriage for 1906 Oklahoma um, and are going into it eyes open in a really yeah, interesting way. Another interesting piece about Oklahoma is it incorporated and in the best productions continues to incorporate a ballet. Yeah. Um, originally choreographed by Agnes DeMille in the most recent Broadway revival it's a ballet danced by one uh, one dancer only that tells the story again. And uh, 
again, it's just the kind of genius of uh, Rogers and Hammerstein to bring into bring into the musical theater canon high art in some ways. And my experience of 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 the ballet in Oklahoma is it's kind of like the ballet in Carousel, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks too. For the audience, it's kind of like, okay, we can relax for a minute. We don't have to worry about, you know, is it this one? Is it that one? Who's saying what? And just kind of let the the deep structure of the drama wash over you for a few moments and see it in a whole other way. Um, uh, yeah, the ballet is interesting, isn't it? Because the ballet is Laurie's ballet, right? It's it's sort of a she you know she takes these Egyptian smelling salts and kind of takes a nap basically. So it's her dream. So it's I mean in some ways like. It's the, what, the, the you know, otherwise, Laurie is your pretty conventional ingenue, right? Like, who's going to take her to the box social and she's this kind of fought over. But the dream ballet is what takes us into the, and this is where Oklahoma, I think, really is onto something very contemporary, takes us into the heart of the sexuality of this girl, right? The, even, in the, even in the 1955 movie with, you know, Shirley Jones and Gordon McRae, um, which is about as 1950s America, apple pie Americana as you can find, even there, the dream ballet is disturbing, and interesting, yeah. right? Like you get the sense that Lori really is at some level sexually compelled by Judd. The dream ballet kind of, you know, this is not just I'm in love with Curly and Judd is a looming, like she's enticed by something about his his presence, his, uh, his sexuality, something about him is compelling to her. And the dream ballet, you know, it kind of gives us that in a way that a song or a spoken scene probably can't, right? Through dance, that can be embodied. Which is why Oklahoma, right, is sort of seen as, you know, almost sort of bringing the, what, the Wagnerian principle of this idea that, you know, art that is fully integrated. So dance, music, story, character, right? A complete work of art. Um, And that really had not been attempted on a Broadway stage before. Broadway was about entertaining you for a couple hours on a Saturday night, getting you just kind of happy and drunk enough to go home and have sex with your wife once a week, right? Like that was the role of the Broadway theater. And Roger and Hammerstein are doing something you know, creating art, right? So the characters drive the story. The story drives the songs. The songs are not drop-in pieces uh, that can be easily excerpted and put on the radio by, you know, any old any old artist. But they come out of the character. They come out of the story. They're completely integrated. And then the, the this kind of amazing thing that let's, let's go ask Agnes DeMille, you know, the most kind of interesting contemporary choreographer, to bring dance onto the show in a way that's not girls with legs in a chorus line, but right, is, is right. telling the story and actually moving the story along in a way that the songs alone and the plot alone cannot do it. It's a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing choice. And the, it's capacity to continue to tell an important story was really demonstrated by the most recent Broadway revival, which replaced the kind of scenery of, of uh, corn rising and with a backdrop of all guns done in a very small stage without the big lush orchestra. Now it's bass, it's guitar, it's banjo. Uh, As you say, Edo Annie played by an actor in a wheelchair. Judd played a much more complicated figure. The murder of Judd is a murder as opposed to it's in the original, it's a knife fight. It, Right. Curly made him a falls on his own knife. He falls on his own knife. Yeah, sure but, he does. Sure he does. And in the end of this most recent Broadway revival, 
the cast are bloodstained and singing the 11 o'clock number. We know we belong to the land and the, the, the messages are multiple, but amongst them is this land was got by blood. By blood. Yeah. Actually, I think, I think the way that, the way that they staged, they, they, um, cause the, the last number in Oklahoma is a reprise of Oh, what a beautiful morning, right? In the film, it's Lori and Curly driving off in the story with the fringe on top, right? As everybody else follows behind and they drive it literally, I think into the sunset, but on Broadway, it's Oh, what a beautiful morning that they sing covered in blood, blood turning to the audience with, I mean, shell shocked faces, right? All holding guns, right? Like this incredible blood bath has just happened. And then we sing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful thing, feeling. Everything's going my way. Lights out. And the audience is left, I mean, kind of to, right? Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, what do we do? What have we done? What do we do with this? What have we done? And as you say, the amazing thing about this revival is they changed not a word of the book, the dialogue, not a word of the songs, but simply by looking at it in another way, change the audience's experience of, you know, I mean, for me, the iconic is really the Gordon McRae, Shirley Jones, the technicolor film bathed in color. Yeah. Um, it is a beautiful film. I went back and watched it a, a little while ago. It's such uh, a gorgeous it's, film. It's gorgeous. The music is great. Yeah. It's a nice And Gordon fight. and Shirley it's are a, good in it. I mean, like they're just, they're, they're so enjoyable. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Gloria Graham is out of way. I mean, it's a great cast actually. It's a, it's a really good film, but very, a long way very much 1950 family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although some of the scenes are there. I mean, her Laurie is, you know, it's not, Shirley Jones is a more intelligent actor than an ingenue role would have, you know, like she's doing some interesting things with Laurie for, for 1955, you know, and she's, what is she all of 21, 22? I mean, it's one of, I think it's her first kind of major, uh, major role. She's doing some interesting stuff with that character. I, 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 I tend to, I tend to uh, write Shirley Jones off, you know, oh, that's so, that's so 50s. She's much more interesting and much more in control of the role, I think, than I, I thought. So I think, you know, uh, you and I have talked before about race and musical theater. And I think one of the, the big questions, uh, I think, for those of us who are, uh, who are white is how do we deal with the world where no longer everything is going our way? Yeah. And for me, that's a good thing, <laughs> just so I'm clear. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with a world where you have to acknowledge the erasure of uh, indigenous people and not assume another narrative uh, where uh, sexuality, our shadow side sexuality cannot just be projected onto someone who we see as different than us, but needs to be incorporated in our own interiority. Uh, I think Oklahoma continues to raise really important questions about land, about race, about sex, mm -hmm. about partnership, even in its naivete as it's presented from 1943. It, it continues to speak and raise important and theological questions yeah, for our time. Very much theological questions. And I think that that is such an interesting question for, for I mean, particularly for white people right now. We're the we're the ones who are sort of, I think, doing some of some wrestling with what does it mean to have said for hundreds of years everything's going my way and now to realize being able to say that came at a cost and we're we're start just starting 
to be a little more cognizant of the cost that other people who are not white have paid in order so that white people could say everything's going my way. Uh, in Oklahoma, the kind of, as you say, the kind of current production really illustrates that so beautifully, um, but does not resolve it, right? And that's actually, I think that's in some ways the most, uh, the most interesting thing to me about that production is it, it then asks the audience to sit in that discomfort, without needing to, right? Like there's no happy ending to Oklahoma. We are, we are living the next chapter of that question. But in some ways, if, if there is grace for us, or if there is, I don't, I don't know if it's salvation, but I think learning to sit with discomfort, to not need to wrap something up in a tidy little bow, to not know how this is going to come out, to not know tomorrow what's going to be demanded of me. I mean, in some ways, like that feels to me like the work of people with privilege, right now at, 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 I mean, at a very kind of basic level. There's all kinds of other work for us to do. But the spiritual work for us might begin with this place of sitting, with learning, getting better at being uncomfortable and not needing to jump out of that discomfort or to wrap it up or to, I mean, I, I'm good at deflecting with jokes. That's how I deal with my discomfort. But that's a, yeah, that's a spiritual too. discipline, right? To, I think so. To sit with discomfort. And I think there's also maybe some wisdom embedded in really leaning into what does it mean that we belong to the land? Because the we can't just be people like you and I yeah. who are white and privileged. Boys, boys and girls <laughs> like you and land. me as the, uh, that, the, boys. the original. So the original love duet in Oklahoma before they replaced it with uh, people will say we're in love was boys and girls like you and me. That's the um, and that that image. Right. Like it's still it's still very much in like Oklahoma. you and me. Boys and girls like but, you and me. But we belong to the land. We are connected to the land. And so is everyone else. And the land isn't ours to subdivide and share. The land, theologically, the earth is the creation of of a loving God. And the interconnections between our lives and the life of the earth and the lives of all people and creatures and species who belong to the earth. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this glimmer of wisdom. Uh, We know we belong to the land. Do they really? Do the do they really know what, what means. it means to belong to the land? Not in the political sense of the state of Oklahoma or the United States of America, but to the soil, to the earth, mm-hmm. to the ground. Yeah, yeah, and you can I can imagine a, a a restaging maybe of of that of that number. I don't know, right? Can you use the can you use the master's tools to take down the master's house? That's a theological question in some ways too. But can you imagine a group of mixed Cherokee white? I'm I'm imagining that original production of Green Grow the Lilacs in 1930, right? If if a little yeah. more of Lynn Riggs was preserved in this thing, what does it mean if Cherokee members of the Cherokee Nation? are singing, irrespective of Oklahoma, we know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. And when we say, yow, a yip-i-o-e-a, we're only saying, you're looking fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay. I mean, there is, there is a kind of beautiful promise in that song, even when you, when you pull it away from the nationalistic, rah-rah, you know, make America great again kind of tone that it can have. Yeah. Um, there, as you say, there's a deeper promise. Oscar Hammerstein was doing something really interesting with those lyrics. So when we say, yip, I, we, a, <laughs> Yeah, which is, what is that? <laughs> a cowboy, that a cowboy is, cry? I know. Yeah, whatever that is. But it could also be, I mean, you know, I'm imagining it could also be a Cherokee chant. I mean, well, what else, what, what else could that be? That. Yeah. 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 What yeah. else could that be? It was fascinating. We're uh, both cathedral deans. The dean's conference was held in 2001 in Oklahoma City. And 
Dean's conferences in those years always began with a very fancy dinner at a very fancy club. And we were at the Ranchman's Club or something like that in Oklahoma. And at the end of the proceedings, and there was great food, beef, of course, and wine and all those kinds of things, the organizing committee from the cathedral in Oklahoma City got up with a whole bunch of other folks and sang Oklahoma, yeah. right? Because uh, it's the state song. Right. It's it's that embedded in the culture. Yep. And it was a thrill. Like everybody stood, clapped along with it. It was an amazing moment. But the legacy of Oklahoma lives on um, yeah. in that state and in its in its imagination. And my hope would be from a theological point of view that what it means to belong to belong to the land uh, might kind of sink more deeply into our consciousness. Yeah, living into that invitation, right? And the the kind yeah. of and that's and that's very we'll we'll, we'll talk talk about this I think as we talk about like South Pacific and some of the more sort of social agenda shows of Rogers and Hammerstein, which is really Oscar Hammerstein's social agenda. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I think he knows what he's doing, right? It, as 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 we were saying earlier, it would be really easy to say we know the land belongs to us. It doesn't it doesn't rhyme? You'd have to figure out a different rhyme scheme. I think that switch is deliberate on Hammerstein's part. We know we belong to the land. He's doing something really interesting there. And I, I suspect that we're just kind of at a place now as, as a culture where we can push in a little bit more to what that might mean. Hey, I think we're in Carousel next week. Guys. Yes. The best overture in Broadway history, I, I think best overture ever yeah okay Until see you next week next week the gospel of musical theater is a production of trinity episcopal cathedral in portland oregon join peter and nathan every other friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on instagram and twitter at gospel of mt learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org podcasts see you next time